that'll give you pieces of the puzzle that you're trying to put together to find out more about your ancestors. They were bound to Chicago, New York, to Syracuse, and Bridgeport, Wayne, Nebraska, looking to live the American dream. They were Chicago bound. Hi, I'm Teresa Murphy, and welcome to Chicago Bound. Chicago Bound is an opportunity for me to explore my own personal family history within the contexts of Chicago, America, and the world. It is the story of people bound for Chicago and people bound to Chicago. Eight generations and the stories of what led them here and kept them here. I've heard many of these stories before. My mom has been interested in genealogy since she was 13 years old, long before she added to the family tree. She's dedicated most of her free time to building her repertoire of knowledge. My childhood was punctuated with her getting excited each time the new census became public record or each time she found a signature on a ship manifest. Each school history project was connected to where my ancestors were at that time. The other kids showed up to AP U.S. history with a page about their grandparents' involvement in World War II. I showed up with a binder. This has always been inevitable. So why now? And why a podcast? I've always been interested in stories. In first grade, I decided I wanted to be an author. While I've chosen to pursue a more marketable career path, my heart will always belong to writing. My mom and I have talked for years about her gathering the information and me writing it into stories. I've tried a couple of times. Purely nonfiction historical documentation of the facts that we have, or more fictional short stories where I try to make my ancestors come alive against the backdrop of the familiar story, kind of like the novel Transatlantic by Colin McCann. By the way, it is an amazing book, and I highly recommend it. He writes a realistic account of historical people and the things that happened to them, but he takes slight liberties with the details. But none of my stories ever sounded right, despite all the information that my mother had collected. And I've realized just recently that the stories weren't working because they weren't meant to be written. They were meant to be told, just as they'd been told to me by my mother. So here I am recording the oral tradition of my genealogy, supported by facts that my mother has dedicated nearly 50 years of her life piecing together, and research into the historical eras in which my ancestors existed. And let me tell you, there are some wild stories. So, let's get into it. This is Chicago Bound. The Oxford English Dictionary defines genealogy as an account of one's descent from an ancestor or ancestors by enumeration of the immediate persons, a pedigree. In simpler words, tracing the path from your ancestors to you. Enter our co-host, Mama Murph, aka Aunt Jill, aka my mother, amateur genealogist. Hi, I'm Jill Julen Murphy with my middle name Anne after my grandmother. I've lived in Chicago for the first half of my life and now in Skokie. So totally in this Chicagoland area. We're sitting in our home office. Behind us sits an entire bookshelf of binders, each bearing the name of a different nuclear family unit, going back as far as 1803. There's got to be almost 50 binders of different widths and colors spread out like a quilt on that bookshelf, each containing birth certificates, death certificates, marriage licenses, newspaper clippings, cemetery records, census records, or ship manifests. 
of those who came before us and branched out around us, each with their own vibrant lives that, were it not for these binders and my mother's vested interest, would have been already lost. When I was in seventh or eighth grade, the reading club at Field School in Rogers Park, I was in the highest reading club, and Mr. Wahlberg was my teacher, and he assigned the book Nicholas and Alexandra as our assignment, and um, in the back of the book it has a family tree of Queen Victoria and shows how all of her descendants were on different thrones throughout Europe at the time, of right before World War One. Here's a family tree with my penciled notes in as I, I went down to the present day Queen Elizabeth II, and then I went backwards where Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were so closely related that that's how the hemophilia that came to the Russian Empire came because they were so they're like first cousins or something like that so so that got me interested in my own genealogy at that point when I was probably 12 or 13. My mom is like a detective piecing together clues from the oral tradition she knows and matching them with written records in the form of censuses birth marriage and death certificates announcements in local papers ship manifests obituaries cemetery records and most recently DNA connections. I started to write, you know, I questioned my grandmothers who were my oldest, you know, my closest relatives that I thought to interview. So I talked to them about their siblings and their parents and where they were from and um, that kind of stuff. And then I started going to um, the Chicago Public Library, which was downtown near the Chicago River at the time, where you could go on microfilm and um, look up like obituaries and stuff to confirm things. And, you know, once you had a date, you could look up information. And then I started ordering birth certificates, death certificates, all that kind of stuff. Um, more recently, of course, it's a whole lot easier because you've got, besides Ancestry.com, you've got dozens, hundreds, or th- I mean, I've got a hundred other sites that I can go on to get different information. So, and then when I was pregnant with you, I spent some time at the Mormons Family History Library in Utah. So I wasn't able to ski, so I made some great uh, discoveries there. But a lot of it you can get online now. She has to muddle through the changing spellings of names as they are Americanized, either by immigration and census officers or by our ancestors themselves. She has to match people by their siblings and parents when their date of birth shifts two years from census to census and use her knowledge of history and familial trends to make deductions about shifting addresses. She has to use logic and reasoning to look beyond the mistakes riddled through the documentation and find the correct people and stories. And she is very good. I'd say it's a hobby I enjoy because I enjoy solving the pieces and getting more information on family, like I said, in history. But also it's like something that never really ends because you can just keep going backwards and sidewards and then you, you add new people and then you can get their family history kind of like knowing that your Uncle Bob and our ancestors were in the same place at the same time, and then finding information where where they both married one of our ancestors and one of his ancestors both married sisters. So we knew that they were in the same place at the same time, and I solved this mystery where I can connect him to us back then. So then, you know, it allows you to imagine what life was like for them and the hard times they went through the treacherous I think we might have just found the first person who died on the ship coming over here you know that happens but there's a lead I have that might may show um 
on the Kane side that 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 happened where the mother didn't make it. So it's just a lot of history stuff that you learn about by studying history from families versus textbooks. She refuses to add an ancestor to our family tree until she has corroborated through multiple sources that this particular person is our ancestor, especially with names like James Murphy or John James. I've seen her shake her head and sigh when she finds someone's family tree that intersects ours, and it is clear that that person hasn't done their research. They say that you should like confirm your sources with like three or four different sources, but there's a lot of people who put stuff on ancestry, like I'll run into they put their own family tree up there, and I'll, I'm, I discover that's wrong. So I'm, I'm a little more careful than a lot of people because I do find mistakes on there. Mm-hmm. But also, there are mistakes, and if you didn't know it, um, one example is my grandmother Julian's death certificate. The death certificate is generated from if you're in a ho- you die in a hospital by the medical records that they have, and a lot of times when people are rushing you into the hospital, you come in in an ambulance or you're you know, your son is frazzled when he brings you to the to the emergency room. He doesn't give the right information because his mind is not in the right place. So the information on my grandmother's death certificate, her address is wrong. Her parents are wrong. And it bothers me, but I haven't gone through the effort to change it. But I, I know it's wrong. But you, you can see that that could happen years ago, too, and you would have the wrong information. So that's why you look for more than one source because if you look for 90% of my grandmother, 99% of my grandmother's informational say she has this address in displays, but one important piece has the wrong address. That's how it can happen because someone could easily be providing the wrong information when they're in a stressful situation. It's easier to do ancestry research in the United States. The records are, for the most part, a lot better kept and a lot more accessible than records in different countries. Many of the records in Ireland, for example, where much of my family is from, were kept in churches. If the church burned, as many did, the records were lost. Mama Murph is looking forward to the next few years. The 1950 census is being released in 2022. The information about specific individuals in the census is released to the public after 72 years. The 1950 census will see my grandparents, many of my great aunts and uncles, and other extended family members. Collecting these records will keep her busy for a while. So right now we're currently waiting, because it should be released sometime this year, for the 1950 census. So anyone who's older than anyone who's older than 72, I could look back and find them in their first census, and that would give me their parents, that would give me their siblings, and then maybe possibly grandparents lived with them. And then you go back and you look at an obituary and you find siblings and parents, and then you just keep going back farther and farther. So you use a a variety of sources to try and put together the pieces. So if you like family, history, and mystery, because you're always trying to solve the puzzle, you're always trying to fill in the pieces, that's what you um, you use all this information and try and um, fill in these little pieces. In addition, she has recently retired and is committing herself more fully to going farther back into our family tree. She hopes to travel to Ireland in the near future to delve more deeply into the records of our family before they arrived in America. But for now, we'll start with our American ancestors. In the 1830s, the Irish are leading the charge of immigration, significantly increasing New York City's population. The immigrants are poor and uneducated. 
searching for relief from British imperialism. This wave of Irish immigrants, beginning in the early 1830s and lasting through the famine of the late 1840s, are packed tightly together in tenement buildings, allowing disease to run rampant. In 1832, a cholera outbreak hits New York City. Tammany Hall, the future political monolith that will push Irish Catholics into positions of power in New York, has recently started accepting Irish members, despite the fear that their loyalty to the Pope will make them poor public servants. They are recognizing the potential voting power that the Irish Catholics have within the city. The first pro-Tammany mayor is elected by popular vote in 1834. In 1835, a building boom begins. The end of 1835 sees a fire that levels parts of the city. And by 1837, the rapidly developing city was seeing an economic crisis that would be followed by a depression. New York of the 1830s is far from ideal living conditions for immigrants, but it is far better than what they are leaving behind. And in the midst of this scene, my first ancestors arrive in America. Morris and Ellen Connolly arrived from Ireland sometime before 1834. Ireland in the 1830s is fully under British rule. In 10 years, Ireland will feel the shock of the potato famine, which will leave the country reeling for many years. But although that death and devastation has not yet hit, that does not mean that Ireland of the 1830s is an idyllic place to live. Ireland is often considered England's first colony. From the first British invasion of the island in 1169 to the eventual freedom won in 1922, there has been resistance to British rule in Ireland. Ireland of the early Norman occupation was still a patchwork of kingdoms, with power expanding and contracting from 1169 to 1536. The War of the Roses kept England distracted until the end of the 1400s, and by the early 1500s, central English leadership in Ireland had essentially disappeared. The conquest of Ireland by England began again in earnest when Henry VIII decided to take back control of the island. The Tudor king's goal was to quell Ireland as a breeding ground of future rebellion after having to quash a rebellion in 1536. He took over the lordship of Ireland, eventually renaming the position King of Ireland. Reconquering the island took almost a century, and with Henry's successor, Elizabeth I, continuing his Protestant beliefs, religious conflict between the English rulers of Ireland and the Catholic peasantry became a theme of Irish history. This included the establishment of the plantations by Protestant English, in which the English crown confiscated Irish land and distributed it to English landlords to then rent out to Irish peasants, thus impoverishing the Irish Catholic peasantry. The most prominent of these plantations was the Ulster Plantation, the repercussions of which can still be seen today by the separation of the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. The plantations prompted many rebellions by the Irish. This religious conflict came to a head in 1690 with the Battle of the Boyne. The Battle of the Boyne was the battle between William of Orange, the Protestant King of England, and King James II the deposed Catholic king. 
After being deposed during the Glorious Revolution, in which Protestant monarchs Mary, James's daughter, and her husband William of Orange took power without bloodshed, James II, who was the last Catholic monarch of England, Ireland, and Scotland, fled to Catholic France. The French aided James in landing in Catholic Ireland, which still recognized him as their king. James worked to build an Irish army. However, his supporters met William of Orange's supporters on the battlefield near the Boyne River and the town of Drogheda on July 1st, 1690, and were defeated. James II escaped to France, and although the Williamite War lasted another year, it was the defining loss of hope for the power of the Irish Catholic people. The period of 1691 to 1800 was the defining period of Protestant ascendancy. After the Protestant victory at the Battle of the Boyne, the English Protestants moved on to the island, ushering in a new era of Anglo-Irish rule and Catholic disenfranchisement. A series of penal laws established the Protestant Church of Ireland as the powerhouse of the island, legally restricting the religious, political, and economic power of Catholics in Ireland. This government repression of Catholics throughout the 1700s led to a number of uprisings, inspired by the rebellions that were occurring across the European continent and across the sea in America. The Irish uprisings culminated in the Irish Rebellion of 1798. The goal of the 1798 uprising was Catholic emancipation and the representation in government for all men. This was in opposition to the Protestant Parliament located in Dublin during the Ascendancy period. The uprising failed in Dublin and was quashed around the rest of the country within just three months. In response to the rebellion, any semblance of Irish self-government was disbanded, with the ruling of Ireland being shifted from a Protestant parliament in Dublin to being incorporated into the English parliament in London in 1801. Ireland would not have a parliament again until 1922, after the Irish War of Independence and subsequent civil war. So we enter into the 1800s with the UK parliament ruling Ireland, and there, in the aftermath of the failed rebellion of 1798, Ellen Lane is born in 1803 and Morris Connolly is born in 1805, both in the area around Lacemore Parish in County Waterford, Ireland. They are children born into the post-rebellion world. The rebellion of 1798 was not a story of failure passed down to them as legend by great-grandparents, like the stories of the Battle of the Boyne would have been. Their parents would have had memories of this failed rebellion being discussed during masses or whispered between neighbors. Sporadic, smaller-scale rebellions continued into 1804, around the year of their birth. Morris and Ellen were entering into a world of newly lost Irish autonomy. With the political representation of the mostly Catholic peasantry, Morris and Ellen among them, by the primarily Protestant Anglo-Irish nobility, led to continued problems that would last far beyond the Connolly's tenure in Ireland. The Napoleonic Wars had seen a boom in the agricultural industry in Ireland, as Britain's consumption of goods from the continent was blocked. France's defeat in 1813 opened the British market to continental suppliers again, resulting in the slump of prices of Irish goods. Declining living standards in the wake of the price slump 
coupled with the collapse of the wool and cotton industries, came in the mid-1820s with the phasing out of import duties. While an Irish industrial revolution may have been a dream of the 18th century, by 1800 they had already fallen behind their United Kingdom rival producers, and the removal of the protection spelled the closure of most of the mills by the late 1830s. In addition to the failing industries, the continued tithes required of Catholics to pay for the upkeep of the Protestant state church, despite the Roman Catholic Relief Act passed in 1829, caused civil disobedience. The Tithe War, as the civil disobedience response was called, lasted from 1830 to 1836. The promise of a lucrative future in Ireland was fast fading, and that may well have been the final nail in the coffin for many young Irish families. This is the backdrop against which Morris and Ellen wed. We are not sure of the exact year that they marry, in part because the record-keeping of the Irish peasantry in the 1800s is not as well-preserved or accessible as that of American census. The difficulty also lies in the inconsistencies in spelling. My mother has found a record that she believes is their marriage license. It shows a Maurice Connolly, two N's, two L's, and a Helen Lane marrying in Tallow, County Waterford, in 1829. Tallow is only an hour and a half from Leesmore Parish. Well, it says Maurice Connolly. We have Morris Connolly. The Connolly is spelled different, but that's um, not unusual. And we have Helen Lane, but Helen, Ellen, and Nellie all seem to be interchangeable. Again, in the different censuses, the same person could be identified as Helen one year, 10 years later, Ellen, and another time, um, Nellie. So, those names seem to be interchangeable and just nicknames, and they weren't all that official, like what is your legal name. And it has Lane. In most cases, we do think that Ellen Connolly's maiden name was Lane. There, there was some question whether it was Sane, but Lane seems to be a more typical Irish last name than Sane. And also, it's, the, uh, it's in the right county, and I think you said that the parish was um, not that far, about an hour ride. Yeah, I did some research, and it was, I think, about an hour walk. About an hour walk. Okay, and they may not have been able to get married, like, right in their same town. There may have been, like, only one place to get married in the whole parish. You had to go to get a, maybe a legal piece of paper or something. So the, the names match up and the times match up. It's just before, you know, a year or two before their kids. I think the kids were born in, like, 30, 31, 33, or so, somewhere, somewhere between that time so this they this looks like february of 29 so the timing might be right the location is right and the names are right other people on ancestry have gone with it and i think i'm pretty sure that this is probably them but th this seems to have enough enough of the right information timing parish names that that i have indeed included this one and they seem to be about the right age so if it was, was 29 he was 24 and she was 26, something like that. So that seems like everything, there's nothing, no huge discrepancies here. They are a young couple looking for a future. They depart for the United States, a country that has declared its own independence from England less than 60 years before. They leave for America, much like other immigrants, motivated by the hope of finding work and raising their family 
away from the political upheaval of their homelands. They probably arrive in New York on a ship. This is the time before Ellis Island, the immigration port through which many Americans can claim their ancestors passed. Ellis Island was established in 1892, and the only ancestor of mine to walk through its halls did not do so until 1902. Instead, Morris and Ellen might have arrived in the port of New York. We do not have their immigration records. Well, I'm not sure. I'm uh, I'm not sure if every ship. I don't really know that much about why we have some ship records and why we don't. I don't know if every ship was required to or if the records have been lost. It's like they they do put out more information all the time, but I haven't seen any additional ship records in a few years, so I'm not sure if, if there are any more to be released. But, but time will tell and see if someone has additional information. And I don't know in their case if they came over as a couple or in other cases, a lot of other cases, the the husband came first, scouted out somewhere, saved some money, and sent over for the wife and or the wife and children. That happened in a few other cases. Both my dad's grandfathers in that case came over first, found where they were going to live, scouted things out, got a job, sent money back home, and then brought the wife and children over. Mm-hmm. So um, th- then they would come on different ships, obviously. And so we're pretty sure that Morris and Ellen came in from New York, right? Because they're living in New York. Well, the kids are born in New York. Yeah, but I have noticed that Quebec was another place where people came in, and that's not really that far. So that would probably be my second choice after New York, New York, uh, would be to look in Quebec. And sometimes you miss out on Canadian, like if you're looking in the U.S. ship records, you might miss out on Canadian. And there's been a couple instances of people coming in through Canada and then going to the United States. Mm-hmm. And another thing is some some people came in like through New Orleans and such. So there's a lot of different options. New York gets the most passing uh, the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island, Castle Garden, but there are definitely other options for ports of entry. All we know is that sometime between 1829, the assumed date of the marriage, and 1834, when their first child is born in Onondaga County, New York, they immigrate. Their names were probably taken down by immigration officers. Like many immigrants to arrive to America, they're illiterate. Over time, spelling gets muddled, as first the immigration officers and then different census takers write down the sounds that they hear. In early censuses, Connolly is spelled C-O-N-L-Y or C-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y, whereas our current accepted spelling of the Connolly family name is C-O-N-L-E-Y. That is how it is spelled on their gravestone. Morris shows up in some records as Maurice. Ellen is interchanged with Helen. This is a trend seen over and over again in records of my ancestors and many other immigrants. Let's set the scene. New York, 1830s. The city of New York, New York, has just seen an economic boom thanks to the newly constructed Erie Canal, which connects the port city to the agricultural resources of the expanding center of the country by way of the Hudson River. The Louisiana Purchase in 1803 has expanded the United States territory to be half again as large as it was, 
And by 1830, there are 24 states, with two more joining during the 1830s. This connection to the new states will set New York City up to be the metropolis it will become over the next century. At this time, the rest of New York State is benefiting from the connection the Erie Canal has brought to the Great Lakes. Steamship passengers from Buffalo to Detroit, and later in the decade Chicago, are occurring every day. Buffalo becomes an incorporated city in 1832. Rochester follows shortly after in 1834. Other towns see their populations more than double during the decade, thanks to an influx of immigrants. Morris and Ellen Connolly arrived from Ireland sometime before 1834. I think most of the time those discrepancies come when census asks how long you've been in the United States or what year you came, and they estimate, or, you know, it was like about 10 years ago or about 12 years ago or whatever, and maybe the census taker does the math and does it a little off, or it was 12 years and they thought it was about 10, and so that's probably why there were the inaccuracies. Then there's also the thing where sometimes kids don't know that they were born in, uh, you know, another country and came here when they were so small that they didn't realize they had been born in another country. That um, Your grandma Murphy's father, some censuses it says he's born in Michigan, some it says he's born in Ireland. So it depends on who's asking and who's answering to say where he was born. With him, I do have a ship record, I believe, where I have the two boys born in Ireland and then coming over here, but some of the censuses say he was born in Michigan. He may not have known. So when he got older, he may have been answering Michigan because I think he came over when he was about three. Mm -hmm. So he may not even remember. And if no one told him, then he doesn't know. So that's one discrepancy. So, and it's possible in the Connollys that they were born in Ireland and came here, but since we don't have a ship record at this point, and I don't know if we ever will, if one exists, we're assuming because they all agree that they were born, both the parents and the kids all agree that they were born in New York. Every census um, says it. So that's maybe why I moved the date up. But maybe at one point, a census taker got the math wrong. We're not sure how much time, if any, is spent in New York City itself. Besides ship records, which we have not found yet, other ways of tracking family history back through time are birth or christening records and death records as well as the census, which is taken every 10 years. We have not found census records for the family in 1830, so there is a possibility that they spent the interim in New York City. More likely, they traveled farther into the state where the canal diggers from the original 1825 completion were living. Many early canal diggers were also Irish immigrants, and it is possible that they had neighbors from their hometowns or uncles who had arrived for the earlier construction. Throughout immigration history, immigrants tend to settle where there are other people like them, often following relatives who have traveled there before them. We know from birth records that by 1834, Morris and Ellen are near Syracuse, New York. This is the place where their children are born, between 1834 and 1840. They go to the Erie Canal, a destination for many Irish immigrants looking for work. Land for the Erie Canal was first surveyed in 1808 with the goal of connecting the Hudson River to Lake Erie. Construction began in 1817 and was completed in 1825. Over a decade later, in 1836, expansion began to enlarge the Erie Canal 
to accommodate the demand of larger ships. This expansion occurred from 1836 to 1862. The deepening and widening of the canal is the world into which Morris and Ellen step. Life as a canal worker is not easy. It consists of backbreaking physical labor, including digging, moving stone and dirt, felling trees, and even blasting rock. The original Irish workers were paid $12 a month, supplemented by, or sometimes replaced by, whiskey. Disease and accidents were rampant, and the mistrust of Catholicism in the country led to laborers suffering violent assaults as the Irish were willing to do the dirty and dangerous work for cheap. They would do anything for the chance at a better life. The Erie Canal's success in connecting the Hudson River to the Great Lakes shifted government interest westward to connecting the Great Lakes to the Mississippi. The area eyed for this connection was Illinois. After a history of Native American occupation and French fur trapper exploration, the area that would one day become Illinois was annexed by Virginia in 1778. It subsequently became part of the Northwest Territory, and in 1809, the Illinois Territory was formed. Fort Dearborn, which was built in 1803, was built on the site that would one day become Chicago. Illinois became the 21st state in the nation in 1818. In 1827, after years of interest, a federal land grant deeded 284,000 acres of public land to Illinois for the creation of the Illinois and Michigan Canal. After the eviction of the Native Americans, after the Treaty of Chicago in 1833, land in the Sag Bridge region was available to create the canal. Soon after, in 1836, construction on the I&M Canal was begun. Morris and Ellen were not part of the initial wave of canal workers who moved on steamships from Buffalo to Chicago, just as they had not been part of the initial Erie Canal workers. They are part of the second wave of each canal construction, a new generation that fixes up and finishes the work started in the 1810s and 1820s. Work on the I&M Canal is slow-paced, Although it was commissioned in 1827, construction did not start until 1836. By 1841, the optimism had faded and sporadic work was brought to a halt. After struggling to secure more funds from investors as far away as England, construction began a full year later. The canal was finally finished in 1848. Morris and Ellen take the journey in 1846 working on the canal for just two years before its completion. They depart from Buffalo, New York, traveling through the Great Lakes on steamboats. Okay, this is information probably obtained from my Uncle Michael from a history of Willow Springs. In 1841, steamships carried agricultural products from Chicago east to Buffalo. Northern Illinois farmers were producing surplus and delivering wagon loans of grain into Chicago, where it was sold and stored in warehouses awaiting shipment. Travel between Chicago and Buffalo was a 16-day round-trip journey. In August of 1846, Morris and Ellen Connolly and their three children, John, Patrick, and Ellen, migrated from Buffalo, New York, to Chicago aboard the steamship, the Illinois. And for the first time in 1846, 
my ancestors set foot on land that will one day be incorporated into Cook County, Illinois. Morris and Ellen's arrival in Chicago marks the beginning of eight generations of Chicagoans. But for a 10-year span, my ancestors have continuously lived in the Chicagoland area, mostly in Chicago itself, for the last 175 years. This is that story. The story of near misses and insanity, of drownings and diseases, of soldiers and shoemakers, and a circus. The story of people who have shaped my family's traumas, but also their pride and their love. The story of those who lived in Chicago and those making their way to Chicago. The story of families piecing together and growing alongside America of the 19th and 20th centuries. 175 years of love, loss, and life. This is my family's story. This is Chicago Bound.